Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 26 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. As you know, it's been a tragic and painful year for many of us, not only seeing a suffering world in the midst of a global pandemic, but also seeing the increased visibility of violence, discrimination, and hate towards Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And most recently, we've been witnessing increased violence and hate towards our Asian communities, which has disproportionately hurt Asian women and Asian elders. It's a troubling and sad reminder of the many systemic sins in our society, and that we, as Christians, have a responsibility to be actively involved in the healing process. And by the way, if you're wondering on ways that you can help, I want to encourage you to listen to episode 21 of this podcast with Dr. Russell Jung, who is co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. In that discussion, Dr. Jung talks with us about ways believers, and specifically how white Christians and white churches can help love and care for Asian American communities. And I don't know about you, but whenever I see a suffering world and tragedy around us, I find it hard to pray. I know that some Christians are prompted to pray when they see pain and trauma, but for me, sometimes I have the opposite response. I'm moved to silence, I'm moved to anger, I can be resentful, and I can be moved into places of faithlessness, anxiety, and even depression. And sometimes when I'm going through a really dark season or feeling a lot of pain, the last thing I wanna do is sit and pray to God. So what do we do? How do we pray when we're in pain? Today, we're honored to learn about how to pray during dark and difficult seasons from Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, who serves as a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's the author of a new book entitled Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. And she addresses ways to pray when we're grieving, lamenting, or angry at God. It's such a timely and appropriate topic as many of us may need help praying, especially me. It's a helpful and honest book on ways to navigate our darkest seasons, those times when we doubt, those times when we feel uncared for by God, those times when we're angry, overwhelmed with grief, and possibly even feeling hopeless. It's one of those books I couldn't stop reading, and I actually had to reread certain passages dozens of times to really let the words sink in. I walked away from the book feeling inspired and motivated And I think what spoke to me most was hearing her own personal testimony of how she dealt with her own pain and her own traumatic experiences. And the fact that she has struggled so much made her words speak volumes to me. In today's episode, Tish Harrison Warren talks with us about ways to build a prayer practice, how to pray when feeling faithless or angry at God. She shares strategies for praying silently and why it's beneficial to pray liturgical prayers and psalms, as well as discussion of the Compline prayer and the Anglican tradition and how it can help shape our prayer life. You can catch a full summary of today's conversation with Tish Harrison Warren, as well as the video chat on the blog at mikedogato.org. Here's our conversation. Uh, You've written a phenomenal book on prayer, and I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about how prayer has evolved for you over time? When I was growing up, I understood prayer as sort of one thing, which was us talking to God. So it was, which that is part of what prayer is, but that was the only 
understanding I had of prayer. So it was mostly about me coming up with words, right? Or me expressing myself um, to God. And so it was very verbal, very talk-based, and it was the conversation mostly sort of went one way, right, of, of me sort of talking to God. Um, and it was always um, self-expressive, something I was thinking or feeling. It was extemporaneous or free-form prayer. Um, and I still pray like that all the time, like every day. But uh, over time, I've come to see prayer. First of all, I didn't. I don't think I knew that there were like different ways of praying. Um, that you could enter into different prayer practices. I, I wasn't aware of that even as a as a kid growing up, or even as a young adult um, in the traditions I was in, and so. Um, so I never totally understood what people meant when they talked about growing in prayer. It always felt like it was like, um, pray more often, give more time to this, right? Which, so then, but there's a limit to that, right? If you, if you understand prayer as only sort of pausing and talking to God, we can't, I mean, that can't be constant, right? Eventually you have to sleep, you have to get some work done, <laughs> you have to, you have to talk to other people. Um, so the biggest kind of change, I think, for me with prayer is understanding that there are, that prayer is not simply like verbal communication with God, but is, um, but is opening oneself to participating in God's presence. And so because of that, um, and through, I guess, I have learned that understanding of prayer because I learned all these different prayer practices of the church, things like silence, which silent prayer, you know, is not word reliant or uh, received prayer from the church, receiving uh, praying prayers that are, you know, quote unquote, other people's prayers. Um, uh, but even things like, um, like, prayer walking or journaling, like um, using visual prayers, right? Um, things like drawing, things like, um, and certain and specific prayers, like prayers of um, surrender or what um, prayers of indifference is what I talk about in the book. So, um, and then of course, like praying the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer and so I think prayer has expanded for me of what I understand prayer to be, um, but also in that um, the definition of prayer changed. So it's not entirely reliant on my own sort of words or self-expression, but um, that I can enter into practices of prayer. I can enter into the, an ongoing conversation between Christ and his church that has been happening for many, many years and will continue to happen for many, many years after I'm gone. So um, that's been kind of chiefly. So so that prayer then, growing in prayer, isn't necessarily only about giving more time to prayer, but it's about making all of one's life and all of one's faculties, so imagination, reason, our emotion, all of that sort of opened up to um, communion with God. What is your like current prayer practice like right now? Well, you know, I have um, I have a one year old, so 
who doesn't really sleep. So, <laughs> so, so prayer for me, and I, I have three children. Um, so at this mm. stage of life, prayer in many ways is sort of catch as catch can. But the things that have really rooted me, especially during COVID, is praying the Psalms. I um, go back to the Psalms a lot. So that's probably been the most consistent. Um, also, um, received prayer like Compline, which is, I focus on the book, but that's been incredibly helpful for me. Um, and then also, I do take some time now. My husband gives me some time in the morning, um, which is just sheer love and self-sacrifice on his part, but I, um, can take that time. And I do a lot of silence, um, right now. Uh, even if I'm ever in the car by myself that I use that entirely for silence because, because I'm a writer. And so words are a big part of my life, but also I have a big loud family. So we, um, so for me, counterbalancing the wordiness of my life with silent prayer has been really helpful. And so Psalms and silence are sort of the grounding um, part of my life right now. I'm actually have not historically done a great job of, of memorizing Psalms or memorizing any. I'm just not great at memorization. So that's kind of my like new cutting edge as I'm trying to like actually commit um, some some psalms to memory which are both mm. it's learning poetry and learning prayer at the same time but uh yeah and then and then of course i spend like there i a lot of my prayer is sort of like like still verbal and still like we prayed today before school began with my kids we um i prayed for some friends as I was walking who are going through a really hard time. So, um, yeah, so certainly I still go back to just the kind of prayer I grew up with, which is kind of extemporaneous word prayer. But for me right now, silence in the Psalms are what's really grounding me. Mm. When you first started to practice like silent prayer, what was that like? Because I feel like yeah. Just going to silence can be kind of scary, all the thoughts coming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's totally new. Um, yeah, I think when I first started, well, at first, what was difficult for me is I was like, I'm not sure anything's happening. <laughs> I think there can be a tendency with silent prayer to expect this sort of like grand spiritual experience, like the heavens opened up, I heard the voice of God, and it was sort of like, I feel like I just sat there. Like, I'm not even mm. sure that actually did anything. I'm not, is that supposed to be a spiritual experience? Cause I'm not sure it was. Um, but I think in time, silence has become much more of a rich experience to me, which is not to say that every time I have silent prayer, I leave, you know, like full of joy and love and worship like that. It, that's not, real like there's certainly times where I'm like well okay that was just a practice of being quiet and I don't know if really I didn't have some big revelation um but I do think more I mean I think I often do now have particular emotions bubble up that I can give to God or particular insight or even nothing that I'm consciously aware of but have a deeper sense of rest in Jesus after a time of silence. So 
Um, the things that I would say with starting for me that were really important were number one, having a short amount of time, like literally, like I would set the timer for five minutes and just try to sit for five minutes in silence. Um, if thoughts and worries and um, compulsive kind of thoughts show up, which is very common, to try to let them go. The image is if you're if you're sitting on this on the bank of a in, um, of a river, that's kind of your mm-hmm. conscious thoughts. And if you see a boat come by, you let it go by. Like you don't mm-hmm. freak out and try to stop it or try to you know, push it away, but you also don't like jump on the boat and try to like obsess on it. So that's the boats in this scenario are your thoughts. Like just let thoughts come and go is the point. If, if it's something I, it's very helpful for me to have a journal in case I'm like, Oh, I forgot. I have to, you know, return that email or I have to, you know, so that I can just literally write it down and let it go. So it doesn't become me making a grocery list in my head. Um, Mm. but uh, so sometimes I'll, I'll write things down, but often just trying to let things go and then letting the time be what it is. I mean, for me, a lot of times, because I don't have as much silence as I could, um, what comes up is a lot of grief or anger or emotion or confusion about a conversation I had. And so being able to go to God with that, um, The other thing that's really helpful is having a particular thing you're sort of meditating on with silence. So um, natural beauty, of course, helps everyone. Um, So if you're if you can be in a beautiful place, um, this is why it's actually been really, really helpful for me for when um, Catholic churches often keep their doors open um, so you can go. I'm not Catholic, but um, but Protestant churches often don't do this. Um, but particularly during COVID, a church down the street still is open as long as you're wearing a mask, um, which has been really helpful um, just to have a silent space because there's very little silent space, especially those of us who have children um, at home without kids going to school and that sort of thing. Um that's just been really helpful. So all that to say, if you can be in a beautiful place, that's helpful. If not, that's fine, but it can help to have an icon or light a candle or have something kind of visually to focus on. But also the Psalms help with silence because you can take a little bit of phrase that strikes you from a Psalm and kind of, um, so for you, O Lord, my soul waits in silence. That's, that's a Psalm. So you can start for, or for you, and then pause for maybe a minute. Oh, Lord, and then pause for maybe a minute. Something to kind of focus your your brain on, um, but then just leave silence. So that's something you can do. Or, I mean, really at the beginning, I started silent prayer because I was on social media so much that I felt like it was, it was, um, I was, I was constantly ingesting conversation. And so really my practice began with just getting used to not filling time, like literally just getting used to not in that 15 seconds you have or at the stoplight or whatever, checking, checking your smartphone or checking my email. Um, so silence for me began with just like getting comfortable with silence. So it was really mostly just sitting there. 
um, at first for me. Yeah, and you touch on something that I think a lot Does of us struggle with. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I love all these examples and, and advice. And I think the thing I also appreciate that you said at the start, that thing that I think a lot of us struggle with, which is you sit down maybe for a silent prayer or even just prayer time in general. And you just wonder like, was that worth my time? Like, did God hear me? Was this time useful? Like, I feel like my, all the thoughts, the anxiety, the stress, things going on in my day or things coming up are filling my head. And like, was this five minutes or was this 10 minutes of time trying to be silent before God, or even uh, trying to focus on a prayer with all these kind of distractions that can fill our minds. Sometimes we feel like, Oh, did I just waste 10 minutes? Like, did anything happen there? Did, did God receive that? You know, I think you touched, you said that. I, I wonder if you kind of unpack that. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of this is that we um, have been trained to associate the experience of God with like particular, particular emotional experiences. This is especially true. Well, I mean, I'll just speak for me. This was true for me because I grew up in an evangelical context. So the notion of like encounters with God were always like people crying or walking the aisle or having some sort of overwhelming kind of emotional experience. So God in the ordinary, which is a lot. I mean, my first book was about that liturgy and the ordinary. Of- uh, liturgy of the ordinary, but the notion that God sort of meets us and it and it feels normal doesn't feel particularly like a m- massive emotional experience. Um, I think takes some getting used to, but I think the witness of the church throughout time is that um, we it's not always sort of this like uh, overwhelming experience of God. I mean, I do think those things happen. They're you have moments of kind of spiritual ecstasy or spiritual, like in, uh, being overwhelmed with God's mercy and grace, but this, that's rare. Um, and so it's, I mean, it would be as if someone got married and expected sort of every moment with their spouse to be this like overwhelming mm-hmm. experience of intimacy and closeness and love, which it's just not like, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of your relationship is just, um, you know, being in the same space, like doing taxes together, right? But it is, it's like that over time that makes a relationship. It's, it is, it is ordinary life over time that is, that, that is actual intimacy. Um, and so some of it I think is like what setting expectations of what it means to follow God in the in my first book liturgy of the ordinary the example I use is eating um and I'm specifically talking about times of reading scripture or having a like a sermon or but it would the exact same thing would apply to times of prayer or silence is that um there's a few like very good meals that I remember in my life and like you know there's this one like the I I went to Boston's North End, which is their kind of like little Italy part, and had like the greatest Italian food of my life, and I will never forget it. Um, so there's like great meals, and then there's like terrible meals. I 
I tried to make this white sauce for my husband the first year <laughs> that we were married, and I don't cook a lot. Like he's he definitely cooks more than we than I do, and it was like such a horrible disaster <laughs> that I remember it. Um, it was terrible, and he ate it anyway. Um, but. Uh, but if you asked me like, what did I eat like three weeks ago on Wednesday? I would have no idea. Mm. Like I have no idea what I had for lunch three weeks ago, but all of those meals, most of which are forgotten is what brought me to where I am now. And if we thought, well, eating's useless unless you have this incredible experience or, um, Mm. we would starve to death, right? Because the vast majority of our nourishment is a little boring, boring. And the only thing keeping us alive in that sense, it's not boring at all. But, um, I think in the same way in our spiritual life, what we're given daily bread, right? And that's what we're given. And that's what we're giving spiritually even. So there'll be moments of, of incredible spiritual sort of intimacy with God. But a lot of it is, um, is our daily bread. And just like our, just like with food, that's completely necessary, utterly nourishing, mostly forgettable. Um, so I I would say the same thing. Um, and, but I will say after doing that, I mean, just, I mean, I'm not very old, but you know, walking with Jesus for the 40 years I have, that if I go long periods of time without prayer and silence, I can tell a difference. Even if an individual time in that doesn't seem particularly significant, but if I go very long without it, um, I begin to see that my own my own um, openness, I guess, my my the way that my eyes kind of are looking for God, um, kind of, uh, that sort of shrivels and I get very full of my own anxious thoughts. Um, so yeah, but I don't, I don't, all of this is sort of so incremental, so small and over time that, um, yeah, that I'm not sure that any one given time feels very significant. And I, I love how you describe prayer as this openness that is because like growing up, it was all about the self-expressive side of prayer for me, like praying out to God extemporaneously, extemporaneously. And I like how like in your book and what you just said about, it's really about being open being vulnerable to God, listening, being silent before God. And that's a very powerful way to look at prayer. Of Just like, you don't even have to say a word. God, God knows our hearts. And that's a beautiful way to think about how prayer exists. That it's not even our words, but it's like how our hearts are, are feeling. And God can sense that. God knows what we're thinking. Um, that's right. I, I mean, I think prayer with words is good and beautiful. I mean, I love words. I'm a writer. And words often shepherd my heart into a place with God. That's why I think the Psalms are so helpful. That's why received prayer from the church is helpful. And I'm all for self-expression to God. Um, 
But I also think, yeah, I think that um, uh, putting prayer all about our own pr- presentation or or, <laughs> or ta- talking to God can become a performance so easily. And um, I love there's an old slogan in the church. I don't even know where it's from. I should look it up. But it, um, the, it you may have heard because it's common. But the the idea of um, that bidden or unbidden God is present, whether whether God is invited or not, God is present. Mm. So God is present. God is working in our life. Just period. God is working in the world. Period. We don't. I think that. There was a time, it was easy for me to conceive a prayer as kind of the quarter that I put in God to make the machine spring to life, mm. right? It was the thing that I did to sort of make God work. Um, but God's working. And so, like, he's at work in my own life. He's at work in the world. And so, um, at bidden or unbidden, I mean, God will work. If, if, none of, if we all stopped praying... God would not stop working, and right, even the rocks would cry out. I think that um, God remains who God is and worthy of of worship. And so, um, prayer is um, certainly part of God's work. I don't want to say like God's at work, so we are just completely passive. Like God uses prayer. That I really believe that, and also though. Um, God is working, bidden or unbidden. And so prayer is is our bidding God is not to get him to come. It's to open our own eyes to God's work and presence in the world, um, which is only done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only done by grace. But um, but I think that if, if prayer is all about our own self-expression, it becomes a performance and it becomes... Uh, a way, I mean, at the worst, it becomes a way to kind of like, uh, especially public prayer. And and we've seen this in the church in the last few years. It becomes this argument over how to express our politics, whether or not we pray for the president or not, or how, um, kind of how to express our theology, right? And, and so it's this sort of like presentation and performance instead of actually opening ourselves to the absolute wonder and mystery of the Trinity at work in the world and, and our responsive worship to that. One thing I really loved about your book also is that you start off really addressing the emotions that sometimes prevent us to go to prayer or those emotions that are um, causing us to protest, to be upset um, and maybe even not want to pray. And I wonder if maybe we can talk a little bit about those times when we are feeling angry at God, maybe resentful, and prayer is not even something we want to do because we're going through a season, maybe a dark season. And you talk about like these dark nights of the soul. And these are probably the, the hardest times to come to prayer because we don't even feel like God's listening or cares for us. And but part of like, being open means going to God during those times. And I was wondering, maybe you can kind of talk about that. Yeah. Um, so I think that when you were asking about kind of ways I've changed in my views of prayer over the years, I think that 
because prayer was mostly about my own words or self-expression that I thought sort of, I have my belief and out of my own belief, I go to prayer and express my belief. Um, but I actually think much more prayer kind of, there's more of a symbiotic relationship between prayer and belief. And that, of course, to some extent, I mean, any sort of entering into prayer, uh, because I don't want to just say, if you get up in the morning and go through your day, that's prayer. I mean, if if prayer is everything, then it's nothing to some extent. So any sort of like practice of prayer or even um, even sort of opening yourself up to silent prayer in the car as you're driving. I mean, I'm just saying it, even even just kind of very ordinary moments of um, of calling on God, however that looks. Um, uh, there's, there's some volition involved. There's some will involved. You kind of decide to do that often. Um, maybe not always. There's been times I've sort of fallen into prayer, but that's because I've developed a habit, right? And so at some point there was some sort of volition in that. So what I'm saying is there is some, our own choice or belief involved. Um, but often I come with really, like I say this in the book, but I think um, the in scripture, when the man says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I think a lot of my prayer is that. And so I come with my kind of small belief, my like um, wavering and, and, and sort of quivering <laughs> belief to God. And and particularly when I use the prayers of the church, I've the received prayers in, in the liturgy, I come to that and it's helpful because I don't have to come up with the, my own words or I don't have to be like full of ardor and faith. I'm, my step of faith is to enter into this practice that I've been given. And then that practice works back on me so that prayer actually, instead of, I have my belief and therefore I pray. Prayer teaches us to believe. It shapes our belief. Um, and so, I mean, I quote James K. Smith in the book saying that oftentimes we show up to church and say, I, I'm struggling to believe. I don't, I don't, I'm struggling and I don't know. So I need you to like sing over me. I need you to pray like, to help me enter into prayer through the words of the church. I need, I need your belief to carry me. And so um, instead of belief being this kind of subjective thing inside us that waxes and wanes that we sometimes feel and sometimes don't belief is this, I mean, I'll say this, the truth of Christianity is this thing outside of us. It's either true or not true, regardless of how we feel about it. If I feel it is deeply, deeply true, and and I'm wrong, it's still not true. And if I feel it's not true, and I'm wrong, and it's still true. So, um, so because of that, if, if I've come to see belief is almost this room that I step into um, that's bigger than me, that outlasts me, that I can participate in or not participate in. 
but it's not reliant on how I'm feeling about things that day. Mm. The creeds say we believe, right? Not I believe. And I'm not trying to pin those against each other. Like, I mean, I, I, I can say I do believe the creeds. And yet, um, if I had to take my spiritual temperature every single Sunday and decide how much do I believe this, how deeply, how am I feeling about it, what I, I just think that's exhausting. And so the spiritual life has to be sustained by us believing together and by this being a bigger thing at work than how I feel at a given moment, um, that I'm stepping into something that's larger than my own faith because my faith is constantly, I believe, help my unbelief. That's constantly where I live. And just processing what you just said, when you're going through moments that you just described where maybe like your your spiritual faith temperature is low and you are going forward with, I'm going to still practice my prayer practice. I'm going to still sit in silence. Are there like go-to prayers, not sure exactly how to phrase this, but like go-to Psalms that you will go to during these kind of difficult seasons? That's a good question. Um, well, there are, but I don't think it's because it's hard for me to answer this because I don't think it's because like these are the best go-to Psalms for that time. It's, it's totally personal. It's like, these are my Psalms. Like these, (laughs) these are the Psalms that have, that I keep coming back to. Um, so it's not like, Oh, these are great doubt Psalms. It's just sort of like, these are Psalms that have resonated with me. Um, throughout my life or in times of deep belief that I sort of return to. Um, So some of those for me would be Psalm 25, Psalm 63, um, Psalm 84, um, Romans 8. Um, So, um, but also, I mean, Compline, I think I wrote a whole book on that. Like that's been a really helpful practice for me because it names the peril in the world. It names mortality. It names darkness. It names um, the brokenness in the world. And I find I really need that. Like I need practices that help me fully hold on to um, the brokenness of the world, the reality of how, how sorrowful things are, but also the hope of Jesus and the joy of Jesus. Um, so like during this, this time that I wrote about in the book where I, my father died and I had two miscarriages and it was, a, it was a really dark time. I was listening on like a, there was a daily podcast of some of a preacher who I won't name, but um, who would sort of exegete a little passage and it was always so peppy and so like victorious and so like look on the bright side of life and it was just like the worst for me it was like it was like this just does not seem real and so i yeah. needed practices that really named like you're not crazy like things are hard like like things are not always victorious things you like there's death there's sickness there's weariness um so compline has been very helpful in that because it names that um 
The other things that have been helpful are the Jesus prayer, which is Eastern practice of prayer, but Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, it's such a simple prayer that I find myself returning to it, especially in crisis. Like, um, in so many times in the basically anytime I'm in the emergency room, I find myself praying the the Jesus prayer again and again. So I, but also in the middle of the night, if I can't sleep, if I'm struggling with something, if I'm struggling with anxiety, the Jesus prayer has been very grounding and helpful for me, partly because again, when you, I, I don't have to come up with the words on my own. Um, but it, it, it's, yeah, it reminds me of who Jesus is and who I am. So the Eastern practice of the Jesus prayer has been really helpful. And then, I mean, lastly, I would say the Eucharist. Like when I really struggle to believe, when I'm really struggling, just being able to come to the table and receive the presence of Christ has been the most helpful thing for me. And it's full of prayer, right? We pray the Lord's Prayer and stuff together. But the, the liturgy around the Eucharist in the Anglican Church really kind of retells the whole story from beginning to end of, of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And so the times of d- deepest struggle, that's like weird dark nights of the soul or what Luther calls um, finding the left hand of God, um, the, taking the Eucharist has been incredibly helpful for me. And again, it's this practice that holds together. Like the Eucharist is a death. Like we're acknowledging blood and sacrifice and um, body, the body broken, right? We're acknowledging a death. Um, and yet it's this proclamation of life and resurrection. And so these these Christian practices that really name both, that name the atrocity of of the darkness and brokenness of the world and name the glory of God are the things that I'm drawn to. Um, so those are, those are some for me. That's, that's really good. Um, so I come from an evangelical background and the churches that I attend actually frowned upon like these kind of traditional church prayers because they're considered like vain repetitions. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, you know, all about that. Um, so for those who like maybe never like maybe they, they heard that growing up in church and like so any sort of traditional liturgical prayers like oh that's that's just vain repetition or that's probably not useful I should just stick with my own um, extemporaneous prayer um, how would you like I guess talk about like the benefits of having like a structured prayer and like and then like how how are you taking that in personally when you're praying it to God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a few things like, first of all, repetition is different than vain repetition, right? The the notion of, I mean, vain is a pretty important load bearing word there. I think in that sentence, in the sense that not all repetition is, is vain repetition, that um, repetition is the way that we learn anything. I mean, my kids are learning um, Latin this year and they have to do a lot of repetition, right? Um, to learn it. So, um, 
but I would say also, I kind of think repetition is um, unavoidable because I grew up also in a church that would have found itself sort of found its identity opposed to liturgy. We don't do that kind of thing here. But if I miss church on a Sunday, I could tell you within a few minutes of accuracy what they were doing on <laughs> any given Sunday. Um, it was, it was, it, even spon- spontaneity becomes repetitive. There's, it ends up where you have the same kinds of spontaneity. And I hear this all the time with prayers. There's um, folks that don't use liturgical prayer, but they, they repeat Father God over and over throughout the prayer like that just tends to be or you know this is such a this is almost a meme now because it's so common but the word just in evangelical prayers Jesus we just want you to do this and we just want you and we're just coming before you and we just you know so there's these these little phrases that kind of get into prayer um that's repetitive and even even Oh, that guy is always just coming up with crazy things. Like that guy is repetitively spontaneous. If that makes sense, like that—that the practice of constantly innovating is a you find becomes becomes exhausting and um, repetitive in its own way. And so, um, I just sort of challenge anyone to not be. I just think it's impossible. I mean, and, and neuroscience bears this out, right? Like 90% of what we do in a day is below the surface. It's not, we don't think about it. It's habitual. Mm. It's what we do. Um, and we see this over and over again. Um, so a lot of our life is repeating the patterns that our brain has set up. And so, um, and it's interesting to me when when the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. He doesn't say, you know, just like, don't repeat anything. Like, just speak from your heart. Like, he gives them this pattern of prayer. When you pray, pray like this. And he pray, and he, and he gives them a pattern of prayer. So, um, so I, I, yeah. So that, that's some sort of like, um, initial thoughts. I would say in terms of ways that that prayer or using other folks' prayer has benefited um, me. Um, here's some way. Well, first, I should also say that church has always repeated prayers. Like the Psalms were the very first prayer book of the church, and they were memorized and they were repeated over and over and over and over. Um, and so some of the ways this has been helpful for me um, is that there are certain things I pray for a lot left on my own without kind of using quote unquote other people's prayers or received prayers or repetitive prayers. There's things that I pray for and there's things that I don't tend to pray for. So I pray for, you know, my kids and myself and my job like a lot. Um, But I, and I've written about this with before I started sort of Anglican prayer practices, I almost never prayed for government officials. I know that that's in scripture to do that, but I'm too cynical about politics. And so it was hard to even know what to pray besides like, 
whatever, like help them not be like <laughs> idiots, right? Like, or, or like be, or be kind of ireful, like full, full, that's not even a word, but like have ire in it, like, you know, whatever. God help the governor who's like <laughs> kind of a jerk, right? Like, I don't, I don't, so, yeah. Yeah. um, uh, so entering, and I just never did it. I would like, it's so low on my radar that I just wouldn't think about it. And so having to enter into other practices of prayer, received prayer in the Anglican liturgies, we pray for the nation. We pray for our leaders by name, whether we like them or not. We pray for justice. We pray for, um, that the poor and the needy will have, will, will, have a just society will receive justice. And so, um, that's like one way that has led me into prayer that I wouldn't have on my own. The same thing with praying for my enemies, praying for people who have hurt me. It's been incredibly helpful to have other prayers in that moment, because I don't know, I don't know how to do that without, um, without sort of just shaping my prayers by my own sort of, uh, uh, hurt or, or, hatefulness as, or selfishness. So entering into words where I, where I pray for enemies that I don't have to drum up has been really helpful. Um, the other thing is I do think it's been interesting because a lot of us, I mean, I didn't grow up with repeated prayers either, and I'm an Anglican priest now, and I have seen over and over again that when people start to suffer deeply, they're more drawn to liturgy. Um, I can't tell you how many folks I know who have ended up coming to our church or getting interested in liturgy or starting to pray, uh, getting a prayer book when they had a daughter that was struggling with addiction or when they had someone in their family die or when their marriage was falling apart. Because I think it's those times where we want to pray, but often don't know how to start and don't know what to say. And um, and then and so I think that having words that we can sort of fall on, and the analogy I've used in writing is falling on them like a life raft, um, mm -hmm. and just being carried to shore instead of having to sort of like um, drum up something in the midst of that which often our questions are so big and so vast and we don't even know where to begin um and so it can be helpful for to have these received prayers and then lastly i just say i i really believe prayer shapes us um so we don't just shape our prayers prayer shapes us and so if we are only come if we're only praying kind of what we can come up with on our own we're inevitably um, not being shaped in the ways that maybe we need to be. We're kind of going back on our own sort of resources or we're being shaped by the culture. So we're learning, I mean, this is partly why we've had arguments over the last few years, so many political arguments that have involved prayer and whether or not to pray for the president or not, because the culture is so politically divided and obsessed that our prayers are then shaped by culture instead of our prayers being shaped by a transcultural global church throughout time. Um, and so 
Um, what I what I mean by that is that we end up just kind of praying what makes sense to us. And oftentimes when I do these received prayers, I'm praying things I would never get to on my own. I would never even think of. I mean, one example in the book is I, I have a chapter on shield the joyous. And I talk about joy as an experience of vulnerability. Uh, and I'm not sure. I mean, I deeply think it is, but I don't think I would have come up with that on my own. I don't think if I wasn't meditating on this particular prayer, I wouldn't have noticed that it's not just suffering that's vulnerable. It's joy as well. Um, so, um, but I think all the time in prayer, I'm, I'm praying beyond kind of what I could get to or what I know and believe on my own. And then prayer works back and, and shapes me so that when I do, I mean, I really do believe now that I, when, now that I, I have prayed quote unquote other people's prayers, now that I, I pray liturgically, um, when I go back into my own prayer, when I do extemporaneous or free form prayer, my prayer is different because of time spent doing that. It, it has shaped my prayer life. Um, but it's shaped by other people's practices of prayer. It's like I'm teaching my, my just turned eight year old. My second grader is um, learning how to read. I mean, she's actually become quite a good reader. We're doing chapter books now, but um, she could only learn that by me reading to her and then me teaching her how to read, right? And so I feel like prayer is the same, that it we learn this language of prayer through other, like you need, she needed someone further into the craft of reading to come alongside her and kind of tutor her in how to do this. And I need folks who have prayed who over the prayers that have endured for centuries. I need, I need the prayers, of the saints to kind of come up next to me and, and just like I, you know, cuddle up with my daughter and teach her how to read. I need them to sort of, to join me and teach me how to pray. Oh man, that is, that's so beautiful. And I got to tell you, like one of the, one of the things that stood out to me in your book that I kept rereading was one of the, prayers you you put in a book about it was from noel i think it's around like page 73 page 74 i guess noel's a doctor and you listed out his like he took like a a, a prayer and he made it his own yeah and I, yeah. Thought it was, I thought it was beautiful way he took a template and he kind of like made it his own and the way that he expressed like going into the operating room and and, and praying for the patient and then like putting aside the sins of anxiety, like the way that he expressed it. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so powerful. <laughs> like I I'm like, I need to create, I need to create something like that. That is so beautiful. The way that he expressed it. I know it was, it was so beautiful. That's his, um, yeah, that's my, his name. It's actually Noel, but he, Oh, Noel. Um, oh, Noel. Yeah. But I mean, Noel's the, with, you just read it. So yeah, my friend Noel, and it was, he kind of walks through the fruits of the spirit and, but it was, it was a received prayer that he took and applied to his own life as a doctor, um, which I just love, right? Because I would never, I'm not a doctor, like I could never write that. And so um, that's what I'm talking about, about it. But I don't think he would have gotten there on his own either without having like a template sort of to enter into. And so um, he uses this prayer throughout 
uh, his work day and particularly there's there's um, certain surgeries he does that are really intense and really um, he has to get everything kind of just right there there I mean he works on he, he works he's a surgeon for for little kids and so it's this really intense job and so he um, was struggling with anxiety and his spiritual director kind of helped him find a liturgy um, and then he sort of t- took it and adapted it in his own and prays it throughout surgery. And it's just this beautiful picture of prayer and work going together, but it's also a picture exactly of what you're saying, of, of taking prayer and sort of it becomes your own prayer. Um, and I love that. I've seen that in my own life so much of words that I've received from other people that become my own and become and um, shape my own life in prayer. But also as a writer, I mean, so I wrote this book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, my first book. We're talking about prayer in the night. But um, afterwards, the, this, the, this group of chemists at, at Wheaton read it together. And they were like, what are the liturgies of chemistry? What are the things that our mm-hmm. own lab enters into again and again and again? And how do those shape us? And how do we, how can we be more mindful of how that's shaping us and also invite like the, the church's liturgy into those practices. And that's something, again, like I could never, ever write that book. I'm not a chemist. So I love it, you know, as a writer, when people take these ideas and bring them into their own life and make them their own, and then they do things with them. I could never, ever do. Um, and I love that. It's, uh, it's an incredible part of writing and an incredible part of even the gift of language that, you know, Noelle can have this prayer because someone wrote it down and handed it down and then make it his own. And he changes it and shapes it for this for this moment and this doing surgery on a, a little child that probably, you know, the that it was completely out of the realm of possibility when of of. um when he received that was not what was in mind when when someone wrote this liturgy so anyway yeah i love how this sort of takes a life of its own and um for those listening in you mentioned compline a couple times in the show because that's what your book is about and you get into detail um on that prayer but i was googling the prayer to try to find it initially and i found like a whole bunch of different compline prayers and i was i wasn't quite sure i'm not very familiar with the anglican tradition and liturgy so I'm not quite sure. Is there were there specific Compline prayers, or is there like one that you were that you would direct people to? So um, no, Com- yeah. So Compline's a whole prayer service that it contains a lot of prayers and the reading of the Psalms and confession, and so it's a whole like office of prayer. It probably takes 15, 20 minutes. So it's not just sort of one prayer. I drew out one prayer from it, and each phrase of that prayer became a chapter in my book. Um, but that my book isn't really exactly about Compline or about this one prayer. It was a, it was a way I use this prayer partly because I love this prayer and it's meant a lot to me personally, but I use it to get into these bigger questions of how can God be good and powerful and bad things happen in the world? And how do we trust God when we can't trust God to keep bad things happening from happening? Um, so, uh, but if someone wanted to know about Compline more generally, um, I mean, 
I, you could, an easy way to do that would be going to my website. Um, if you just to sharesonmorn.com and you click on the tab that says prayer in the night, there's four different, I link to four different Compline services. One is from the Episcopal 1979 Book of Common Prayer. One is the 2019 Anglican Church in North America um, Book of Common Prayer. And then I have, uh, I can't remember, I think one from England and one from Australia, maybe? I can't remember. Oh. They were all in English. Um, so, and they were all online. That was because I found some other cool ones, but they went like, there's a, there's a Kenyan liturgy and stuff, but I couldn't find it online. So, um, yeah, so that would be a way you could easily find the Compline service. The Compline service I used, um, for years and years before this book came out is the, just the book of common prayer Compline service, the 1979. So you can BCP online is if you do bcponline.com, I think it's, you can look and find the Compline service, but, um, yeah. So this is just one prayer from a group of prayers and the Catholic Compline service is going to be a little different than the Lutheran Compline service, which will be a little different than the Anglican Compline service. So, um, there, there's not sort of like one universal Compline service, but you can't, I mean, I, you can't go wrong. Like there's not, I mean, just use different ones, I guess I would say, or use the same. I mean, I just, because I'm in an Anglican tradition, I just use the same one every time. Yeah. It was, it was very powerful the way you presented it. And that's why I was Googling it. Like, what is this prayer? Where, where do I find it? And, um, and I also appreciate <laughs> all, all the, all the ways that you like expressed prayer, especially for those of us who are going through difficult seasons, those of us who are maybe depressed, anxious, um, angry at God, like you start off the book kind of like talking about that. And then you even, you gave me words that I didn't even know existed, like theodicy. I didn't even, I never knew what that word was. And you introduced that. And like this, this idea of like, we have a God who cares for us and, and loves us, but also there's this problem with evil and pain in the world. And how do we kind of see these things together and so you like you 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 gave me new words and like new themes to be thinking about because I didn't even know that was even a thing. I, I've struggled with it, but I didn't know that there was a word for it. Um, but I want to, yeah, I want to thank you for, for writing this book. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's part of what I want to do as a writer is um, be able to introduce people to theological ideas in ways that aren't that are easier, right? That that are able to be understood without, you know, having a seminary degree. So I hope, I'm grateful, like I'm grateful it gave you theological language and things to think about in a way that was accessible. Um, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. And this particular prayer, you mentioned like it, Googling to find out where it's from. I mean, the thing that's funny about this particular prayer is like no one exactly knows where it's from. I mean, I did research to try to figure out exactly when it showed up and like we like nobody knows like it, it can't I'm not I'm not sure where it came from I mean I'm sure it's out there I'm sure there's some liturgic scholar that can find it but um I did I looked hard and was not able to successfully figure out where it was from so it just sort of got passed into the tradition at some point and we don't really exactly know when 
Well, it's a beautiful prayer. And I want to thank you for um, talking about it, writing about it, sharing your thoughts on it. And for those that are interested in uh, following you on social or um, finding you on the web, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? So um, as of recently, because I, I have a social media helper now who's younger and hipper than I am, um, I have more ways. So I'm on Twitter, Tish underscore H underscore Warren. Um, but I'm now just like literally for, I think, two or three weeks ago is when I started also on Instagram. And then I have a public Facebook page. I don't um, friend people that I don't personally know on Facebook because I, I, I have kids that and I want to protect their privacy. But um, so I have a public Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter. I also have tisharrisonwarren.com, uh, which is a website if you want to read more of things I've written. But I don't blog on it or anything. It's pretty. It's a pretty. Um, uh, I don't. What's the word? Where where it doesn't change stationary website? or static static yeah. yeah yeah I have a monthly column with Christianity Today and I just publish in other places as well so I I update it with when I publish something you can find out about it awesome well Tish thank you so much for being on the podcast thanks for having me thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Tish Harrison Warren about her book entitled Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep which is published by InterVarsity Press. So I'm curious about how this conversation of prayer has impacted you. Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at MikeDelgado.org. Next time, we're honored to chat with Dr. Vince Bontu, professor of church history and black church studies at Fuller Seminary. He talks with us about his journey to study ancient African Christianity and the black church, as well as a discussion on ways for us to properly address racism, black pain, and white supremacy. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help the show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll chat more next time.